I turn that off because I'm going to get water, and I don't want you to have to hear me drinking, and then I forget to turn it on. (laughs) I'm sorry. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. Hear now the word of God. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when Jesus, the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed." But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. These are a lot of interesting illustrations, kids. Don't you love how Jesus uses language from everyday life to talk about himself, the gospel, and what he has come to do? And we see that here, don't we? Kids, when you're sick, you go to a doctor. When you have clothes that get too small because you're growing, you you or mom or dad go to the store. When you have a really nice meal together, mom and dad might have a glass of wine. They might not. And all these are pictures Jesus uses of things people are using every day in their life. And he's talking to us about the new covenant, He's talking to us about his mission. He's reminding us that he came to save sinners, that he's come for the hungry, for those who are thirsty, for those who are downcast, for those who are broken in heart, for those who are humbled and confess, I need a Savior. This passage reminds us, loved ones, of the mission of Christ and how that mission is still going forth today. This is not just a historical note. Jesus continues to call sinners into his kingdom. And we look at how this unfolds in these points before us. First, Jesus' mission in this new covenant is to make disciples. The Bible teaches us from the beginning of Genesis, after the fall of Adam and Eve, all the way until Jesus comes again or calls us home, that we have a sickness that's fatal. It's called sin. 
When Adam broke the covenant of works, in Adam's fall sinned we all. He plunged us all into sin. Our heart, our condition, our soul, our mind, our body, our relationships are affected by it every week, every day. But Christ has come in the covenant of grace and the new covenant that will be shed with his blood shed for us to reverse the curse. Adam plunged us into sickness and sin. Christ, the last Adam, brings us forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life. He comes and he does that vividly by healing a leper, by forgiving the sins of a paralyzed man and giving him the miracle of being able to walk again. And now by coming to a very rich Jew who's a tax collector named Matthew. The gospel's for everyone in all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all walks of life. Here is Jesus in Capernaum, and most likely he had had interactions with Matthew before this passage. Matthew lived there. He was in a tax booth. That might remind you of April 15th this week, your taxes and all that comes with it. Well, in this day and age, it was beyond what we can probably comprehend in our minds, what a Jew as a tax collector would be seen as in that culture. The Romans, when they conquered lands, would gather taxes from those lands, and then the highest bidder would get to go and be the tax collector who got what Rome asked for and also whatever else they wanted to add on. And they would add on. It would pile on. As Derek Thomas says, imagine this. Every particular item of clothing you wear, your own donkey that you're traveling with, would be taxed as you're traveling through the different lands in which you lived. Matthew worked for a man named Herod Antipas, the brother of Herod Archelaus, who was the brother of Herod Philip. They weren't real creative in their names because they were all the sons of Herod the Great. The kingdom is divided among the three Herods. Matthew is sitting probably on the road between Syria and Egypt, between the provinces of those Herods. Everything that came by his booth would be taxed. And now who comes by? In amazing grace, God in the flesh. Jesus, he gazes intently at Matthew, a man that was probably hated by the four disciples at this point, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The other disciples will be called in Matthew 10. They probably knew this guy. He was most likely the most hated man in Capernaum, the worst, the unforgivable. If you're a Jew and you join with Rome and you're taxing your own people and you're in cahoots with Herod, There's no hope for you. He's the problem. And Christ goes to him. And just like he said in Matthew 5, the tax collectors love those who love them. Now Jesus is about to remarkably show love to this tax collector. It would be like in our day, Jesus going down to Planned Parenthood. Going over to the house of the guy who owns strip clubs and saying, come, follow me. Why does he notice Matthew? Isn't Matthew beyond 
forgiveness? For the same reason he chose you and me. By his grace. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Out of love, he comes to Matthew. Matthew is one that the Father gave to the Son before the world began. Matthew is one that Jesus says, the Father will call. And right here is Matthew's conversion. And we see the conversion and how it's genuine in that Matthew leaves everything. It doesn't say that in this account, but in Luke's account. The other disciples will go back to their fishing business and other things, but not Matthew. Why? Because his job was immoral. Because what he was doing was sinful. He repented. There's a break in his life. He follows Christ. He leaves behind his former life of sin. He has fellowship with the living God. And beloved, when Christ calls you to himself, he calls you to leave everything and follow him. That doesn't mean in some sort of weird way you just take off to the mountains and leave your family behind. No, it's talking about our life of sin. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in this life. But whatever it is that is competing for Christ in our hearts, that we know that we're loving more than Jesus, Christ in love for you says, I don't want that to destroy you. I, by my spirit, am going to give you grace to repent and turn away from it. So don't follow your own sinful desires. Don't follow the culture around you. It's sending us messages nonstop. It's calling evil good and good evil. God is giving them up, Romans 1. Don't follow kids the peer pressure you get. You get a lot of it. You're going to get kid, you, you already have some of you, probably kids, who on your phones and in social media maybe are pressuring you towards certain things or telling you you've got to do this to be popular, you've got to do this to be liked. Don't follow those lies. Christ will give you grace to follow him. Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew throws a party. He's a brand new believer. He invites other tax collectors and sinners to the dinner gathering. That's a phrase that we see often, tax collectors and sinners. What does that mean? We're all sinners. But it is referring in particular to those who are living contrary to the law of God. Kevin DeYoung really applies this well. It's, in our day, it's Jesus having dinner with a man who's a drug addict, with a woman who sleeps around, with a homosexual, with a lesbian, with an atheist, with a married couple who are at each other's throats, destroying the lives of their kids. It's Jesus having dinner with a middle-aged woman who buys all the trashy magazines at the grocery store and watches daytime TV and the gossip shows. With a gang member, a Wiccan, an ex-con, a guy who's been divorced five times, a woman who is so selfish, she talks about herself so much and nobody wants to be around her. Jesus is having dinner with sinners. They're reclining at the table. They're lounging. It's an all-day dinner. And there's a passage here that reminds us in this that evangelism is what you do when you tell people about Jesus. 
It's an application here. It's often the strongest the first few years after we're converted. People are passionate about Christ. That's what Matthew's doing here. And an encouragement to us to pray, God, help me maybe to reach out to my neighbors this summer. Maybe you already are, but maybe those neighbors that nobody wants to talk to. Maybe those neighbors who are living in sin and nobody wants to go near them. Help me to love them, to invite them to my home, to show them honor as one made in God's image, to share with them about Christ. Not everyone likes this dinner party. The Pharisees, in particular, find out about it. And do you notice here how they are seething over it? Not to Jesus himself. The Pharisees, it says in verse 11, said to Jesus' disciples, isn't that remarkable? You and I are the same way. We have a problem with someone. We don't want to talk to the person. What do we want to do? We want to talk to someone else about our problem with the person. That's what they're doing here. They don't go to Jesus. Why are they so upset? Well, the Pharisees thought the tax collectors, like Matthew, who have joined with Herod and are pro-Rome, are the problem with everything around them. How can you have dinner with those guys? And in one of the most arrogant questions in the whole Bible, they say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The arrogance of it. What are they implying by that question? That they're not sinners. The Pharisees thought, if you eat with those people, you're sharing in their sin. They want to break out the Lysol and spray it down and keep them away. And if you eat with someone in that culture, it's showing communion and intimacy, and we don't want to talk to those guys. How does Jesus respond? he begins to use these illustrations from everyday life. If you're sick, children, you go to a doctor. But you don't go to a doctor if you're well. You don't say, I've got a day off, I feel great, let's go to the doctor tomorrow. (laughs) No one does that. So it is Jesus. He says, I'm not here to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm a spiritual doctor. Not that there are any who are righteous in themselves. This is a bit ironic. Jesus says, I am no help to those who are self-assured in their righteousness of their own, which is no real righteousness at all. He says, I want you guys, Pharisees, to look at Hosea. Do you remember what the Old Testament prophet, 700 B.C., used to say? Back then, the heart was the same. God is not interested in outward formalism, in superficiality which is what the Pharisees were all about. What does Hosea teach that the heart of God is? Mercy. Compassion. The whole Old Testament teaches you that. The Pharisees didn't understand sin or the law or the prophets or the grace and gospel of God. Think of how impactful these words from Hosea would have been on the context here. Because Jesus had just healed the paralytic. 
those men who loved their friend or their brother, whoever it was in Matthew 9, saw that someone could help them, Jesus. They did all they could to get their friend to Christ, which is an encouragement to you who care for those who have physical, medical complexities and afflictions, disabilities, paralysis. This is the heart of God for the afflicted. Mercy, compassion. That had just happened. And now Jesus is saying, the Pharisees don't understand my mission. This sin is in our hearts too. Whenever I fail to remember that I'm a sinner saved by grace, by the love of God, that I still have indwelling sin, whenever I forget that and start to think of the sins of others more than my own, that's the heart of the Pharisee here. As he eats with these tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is not sinning. There's extremes that people have jumped to on this. He's not approving of this unrepentant lifestyle. But he's eating with known sinners. He's also not saying, stop being a tax collector, Matthew, and then I will eat with you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not stop and then become a Christian. The gospel is that Jesus has come to heal the sick, to call sinners to himself. And of course, what follows as the fruit of saving faith is that Matthew repents. He doesn't live as a tax collector anymore. But we don't put the cart before the horse and make conditions. If you do this, then you can be a Christian. Jesus doesn't blanketly accept them, but he openly invites them, repent and believe in me. He calls sinners to himself. He's not compromising. He's not offering cheap grace, as DeYoung says, but he is exceedingly gracious. There's no sin so deep that disqualifies a person from the grace of God. There's no sin that separates you from the ability and the power of God's love to save you and to transform you. Whatever your past, remember the purpose of Christ's coming to save sinners. He says they're sick. We're sick. He's come to heal. We're not okay. Here's how DeYoung applies this, and I think there's a lot of wisdom here. We need less fear of contamination and more confidence in Christ's power to cleanse. Not an encouragement if you have had struggles with drunkenness to then just go to a bar and get drunk. No, that's not it. But he says, don't think of relationships with unbelievers as dangerous, but as opportunities to love them as one made in God's image and share Christ with them. Jesus can save this person. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He says as well, speak the truth about sin, but don't be a spiritual nag. Don't try to be a conscience for someone. Don't try to be the Holy Spirit in their life. Meaning, don't hang out with your non-Christian friends and then say afterwards, okay, here's four things I don't like about what you just said here this last hour. That's what he's saying. Third, he says, you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. 
It's not a mark of Christian maturity, he says, to always be edgy. That's why people get cut and bruised around you, he says. And then the application again to us. We need to know and feel deeply that Emmaus Road is filled with tax collectors and sinners. They are here. We are them. We are Matthew and his friends. This church is a place for sinners to come to the Savior, not for the healthy, but for the sick, to come to the doctor for the cure, to come as people who know we don't have it all together. We are afflicted and struggling, indwelling sin. We've been sinned against. Humility, not pride, is to mark us. We've been forgiven much. God, give us grace to love much. We've been forgiven much. God, give us grace to forgive. None of us wants to restrict the call of the gospel. But as God searches our hearts, in our hearts, do we think of people that we think, no way. If they showed up at church or if they showed up for an outdoor barbecue at my house, n- no. That, that's too much. That's some of what God is teaching us here. To love like Jesus loves is to welcome big messes, DeYoung says. So here's the challenge to me and all of us. Will you join together in Maus Road in praying for non-church people to come and hear the gospel and confess that Christ is Savior? Rich and poor, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's welcome sinners to come. Pray that God would bring them. Pray that they would be welcomed when they come, loved when they come, not ambushed and not ignored. And that we would love them and have the grace to speak the truth to them. That the Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and bring them to Christ in faith and repentance. That they would know Jesus. That's his mission. Beloved, that is our mission, equipped by his spirit. Second, Jesus came to give joy. Here's the dinner, and here's the response. We're not sure if it's exactly at the dinner or later, but the disciples of John the Baptist are here, and Luke mentions the Pharisees as well. And now, they're not only mad that Jesus eats with sinners, they are mad that he eats at all. Why aren't you fasting? We're fasting. John's disciples, the Pharisees? You're a glutton, Jesus. There's a whole biblical theology of fasting that we won't get into today. I'd be happy if you want to follow up and have coffee or a phone call this week and talk more about it. There's one commanded fast in the Bible, the Day of Atonement. There are over 77 examples of fasting and prayer. It goes together in the Bible. We were reading Esther in our family devotions this week, and Esther 4 talks about the edict that's given to kill the Jews in Susa. They're fasting. It's often in times of mourning and repentance and grief that the people of God do that. But in the days of Zechariah, they're fasting when God didn't require the fast. It's very interesting, Zechariah 7. God says, you're fasting for yourself, not for me. I want love, and you're all about the external. 
And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They would fast on Monday and Thursday, twice a week. And they would let everyone know it. The face would be white. They'd put stuff on. Their hair would be all over the place. I want you to know I'm spiritual, and I want you to know what I'm doing, and I want you to know I'm better than you. (laughs) That sin lurks in all of our hearts. To be spiritual, they said, you have to be uncomfortable and unhappy. Fasting had become an end in itself for them. The point is, okay, why then are Jesus and his disciples not fasting? Interesting question, isn't it? Do you see why? Jesus says, can the wedding guests mourn when the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is the bridegroom. He is God in the flesh. He is the one the prophets said would come. The church is his bride. I'm here, he says. It's a time to feast. It's a time for joy. You don't go to a wedding and after the wedding have a reception with no food. As one man says, if you're the father of the bride, you might like that idea. All of a sudden, the cost goes way down. No food. No one does that. The wedding, feast, celebration. No wind to feast and, Jesus says, no wind to fast. The time will come when the bride, groom, will be taken away. Then you will fast. He's speaking here of his death. A violent death. So what does that mean for us? Is it a time to feast or to fast? It's a time for both, isn't it? Sorrowful yet rejoicing. We feast as we gather on the Lord's Day. We feast as the Lord's Supper is celebrated. We feast with our friends and family over meals and birthday parties and having a nice dinner together and Easter lunch. And we give thanks to God with gratitude for the prosperity that we have to do that. And we fast. We fast because we know things are not as they once were before the fall and as they one day will be in glory. We fast because the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't come yet. We fast not out of duty or obligation in terms of merit or certain days or methods or strict ideas on how to do it. You're free to fast in Christ without all of those added man-made restrictions. Fasting is an abstaining from food for a set period of time to humble the body and soul before God in prayer. God, give me a greater sense of your presence and power. Help me to hunger for you. Help me to thirst for you. There's a pattern of this in the early church. Acts 13 and 14. The commissioning of missionaries and elders. It's not that we say, God, you are now obligated. But the things that the Bible talks about that led to fasting, war, plague, leaders being ordained, repentance, they're serious matters. They still are for us today. God delights when we show our helplessness and are dependent upon him. 
That we are in Christ compelled by the love of God. We are patiently and expectantly waiting. We have oil burning in our lamps. We're longing for the bridegroom to come. And why is this joyful? Because there's a newness to it. Third, Jesus comes to provide newness in the new covenant. So Jesus is a doctor for the sick. He is a bridegroom for his bride. And now he has come as one who is not putting patches onto old clothes. <laughs> now you think, this, this really throws me off. If you have a pair of jeans that are old, and you have a hole in them, kids, and then you get a new pair of jeans for your birthday, you don't rip them. Well, maybe the style is today you do, is it? But you don't rip them and then take a patch out of the new ones and put it onto the old because it will not work. It'll shrink and the garment will tear, the old one. What's Jesus saying? Pharisees, don't just patch me on to your life. I've not come to just be patched onto the old covenant, but I've come to fulfill everything that God has promised from the days of Abraham and Adam before him, through Moses, through the prophets, I'm here. The new covenant in my blood will be spilled. I'm come to give the garment that God promised to Abraham and to Adam and Eve. The old covenant is the Mosaic law. It's not old covenant equals Old Testament. New covenant equals New Testament. No. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the covenant promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and to Abraham in the covenant of grace in Genesis 15. The old covenant of Moses was a part of the covenant of grace legally administered. That's why you see all these regulations about sacrifices and civil laws. The old covenant, 2 Corinthians, in this sense, points to our sin and our need for a savior. That's what Jesus is getting at. It's not that he throws out the law. The law is God's law. He fulfills the law. But the Pharisees had added all of their man-made traditions and they'd missed the law of love. No compassion. They buried it and threw dirt on top of it. Don't go back to the shadows of Moses, Jesus says. Don't try to climb your way to God by your self-righteousness. Don't confuse old and new covenant, law and gospel. Don't think that the new covenant is God just gives me a little more grace to do it, and then God will be happy with me. The new covenant is the covenant you are in, beloved, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. His finished work. The redemption is accomplished. He fulfilled everything he promised to Abraham. You're not in the shadows anymore. You have new wine. That's the last thing he says about illustrations. You don't put it into an old wine skin. They didn't have bottles then. They had goat skins that they used to put wine in. If you put new wine into those old skins, what will they do? They'll break. And wine will be everywhere. He's speaking here of the fact that he is a mediator of a new covenant. Moses is not your mediator. Christ is. 
Christ fulfilled the demands of the law. And Luther said, hang Moses on the gallows. You might think, whoa. That should make us think. What does he mean? In terms of the law condemning us. It doesn't condemn you anymore. You're in Christ. The old covenant, do this and live. The new covenant, believe in Jesus and be saved. The old covenant, pointing out your sin. The new covenant, the righteousness God demands, he provides in Jesus. That's why it's a time for joy. Is there grace in that old covenant administration? Of course there is. The sacrifices are about the grace of God. But in this sense of the law condemning you, you don't relate to God by your law keeping, but by Christ's law keeping. He's the bridegroom. He's come. Now the law is your delight. Now you fast out of gratitude and love for the Lord. Not in a way that the Pharisees had twisted it into making it a duty to make God love you. You fast because God loves you and because you, lo- you yearn for more of the love of God to be experienced in the hearts of you and his people. The Pharisees missed the freedom of the gospel. Jesus says, I'm not here to bring back the good old days of theocratic Israel. I'm here for much more than that. I'm on a mission to fulfill what I promised God himself to Abraham, that through the offspring of Abraham, every nation will be blessed. The elect from every tribe and tongue and people. I'm here to give you new life. Do you notice kids in the spring? Earlier, maybe not quite now, there were still some dead leaves on the trees. Was that surprising to you? Might not surprise you because you see it often, but they, they live through the fall, through the winter. And now, finally, as new life is coming, those dead leaves are gone. What happened? When new life buds on branches, it pushes out the dead leaves. That's the point Christ is making. Spring has come. The dead, lifeless ways of the legalism of the Pharisees has no place. Jesus came to push it out, to give something better. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's come to give you the expulsive power of a new affection. Beloved, you have a new heart in Christ by faith. You have sin forgiven. You're a new creation. God is your Father. The Spirit is helping you and I in our weakness. You have boldness to pray before the throne of grace. You have the riches of God's inheritance, the hope of glory. Your hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. You will see God. Satan cannot condemn you. Sin cannot destroy you. Death has been defeated for you. Christ has come, and he is coming again. The marriage supper of the Lamb. If you don't know the love of Christ today, if you think you are beyond the reach of his love, I would invite you to read again today Matthew 9. Jesus says, I came for sinners. If you're a believer today and you're discouraged, be refreshed and taste again his love for you, an unspeakable love, 
above the top of the brim, below the bottom of the ocean. Christ has come. Rejoice. And we long as we rejoice for the return of our bridegroom and the glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's respond and sing.